Um, So today's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 to 37. And yeah, feel free to follow it on your electronic device or on the screen. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Phil. I'm going to read you a story. Are you ready for that? Is that okay? This story is called The Keeper of the Stream. There once was a town high in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. The stream was fed by springs that were old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as keeper of the springs. He had been hired so long ago that no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water. But his work was unseen. One year, the town council decided they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair and uh, taxes to collect and services to offer. And giving money to an unseen stream cleaner had become a luxury they could no longer afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs went untended. Twigs and branches and worse muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm wastes turned part of the stream into stagnant bogs. For a time, no one in the village noticed. But after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed the the loss of sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the stream that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened. The money was found. The old man was rehired. After yet another time, the springs were cleaned, the stream was pure, 
Children played again on the banks. Illness was replaced by health. The swans came home and the village came back to life. The life of the village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul and you are the keeper. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you want us to live and to grow and to thrive. Thank you that you came that we may have life to the full. We pray now that as we uh, look at your word, as we look at this idea of our soul, Lord, would you come and reveal to us the truth about ourselves and the truth about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to a new series, um, a new term, a new series, uh, which we're calling Soul Keeping. Um, It's a series that's come out of this book, uh, where I just read that story from, uh, of the same name by John Ortberg, who is a pastor in uh, the United States and This book is actually one that's become really precious to me over the past few years. And the reason we're going to look at it this term is that I feel at its heart, it's got a message that is so relevant to us in this cultural moment, by which I mean early 2020s, post slash mid pandemic, who knows anymore, new school year, new vicar, new, well, old mental health crisis made worse, unsure, uncertain future, etc., etc. To give a reference from our everyday language, this has been described as a time of soul searching as we reflect and attempt to figure out who we've become these past few years, because by the time we finish this series, it will be two years since we first heard talk of a mysterious virus circulating in Wuhan province, and who we want to be, and perhaps who God is calling us to be going forward. And there's this question which I guess kind of forms the premise of this book, or or at least underpins this series, and it goes something like this. How is it that I can believe all the, inverted commas, right things about God. I can read my Bible, I can pray, and yet that doesn't seem to sustain me through some of the trials and tribulations of life as I'd wish or as I'd expect. Why is that? How can that be? What does that say about me? What does it say about my faith? Where's it all gone wrong? John Ortberg's suggestion, and um, I should say the Bible's suggestion too, is that a big part of the answer to those questions can be found in understanding the state of your soul. Now, what is the soul? Now, here's um, what I'm sure will be the first of many quotes from this book over the series, but also this morning. Ortberg says that most people in most places at most ages have believed that human beings have some kind of soul. We know that it matters, we suspect it's important, but we're not quite sure what it means. Cultural references to the soul crop up everywhere, from the media, to ethics, to music, to justice, to film, it's everywhere. Despite the fact 
that some people believe today that the soul simply doesn't exist. I guess it comes down to whether you or whether all you amount to is a highly evolved collection of cells um, with, by the way, an incredible capacity to connect to others and experience emotion and yearn for eternity, but will ultimately cease to exist when you draw your final breath. Or, to quote Dallas Willard, to whom this book is dedicated, you are, in fact, an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe, which means that the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become, because that's what you will take into eternity. Do you get what that's saying? Saying that there is more to you than your body. As you, as you get older, your body will start to perish, but your soul won't necessarily. Even as you grow physically older and become wrinkly, your soul will continue to grow and develop, perhaps ever more beautifully. We all know people like this. One of my favorite beautiful old souls is a Benedictine monk called Brother Herbert. He turned 100 this year. He's not much to look at. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. But man, is he a beautiful soul. I like this uh, quote, greatness of soul is available to people who do not have the luxury of being ecstatic about the condition of their bodies. Greatness of soul is available to people who do not have the luxury of being ecstatic about the condition of their bodies. It's available as well to those who are ecstatic about the condition of their bodies, just to be clear. Um, One thing about the soul in Christian understanding is that you don't have a soul as such. You are a soul. Your soul is the thing that integrates all the other parts of your being, your body, your mind, your will. It's kind of like the operating system on a computer rather than an individual component. Again, this is how Dallas Willard explains it. What's running your life at any given moment is your soul. Not external circumstances, not thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of human beings. So that's what we're looking at, the operating system of our lives. The soul is something made to relate to God, made by God, made for God, made to need God. As opposed to the self, which is a standalone unit that struggles to find fulfillment and and meaning within itself, literally. We all know that. Sorry, that's a lot of words, that's a lot of slides, and I realized as I went through that blue was probably the wrong color to put words up in. Um, so you just had the same experience of not being able to see what's on the slides as the people at home. So you're all in the same boat today. Um, I'm trying to summarize probably what are three, three or four very good chapters in there in a very short space of time. So um, do get hold of this book if you can and, and, and read it, or, or get hold of the audio book and listen to it as you go about your daily tasks. 
Let's have a, a look at what the Bible teaches us about the soul. Now, the soul crops up everywhere in the Bible. It's all over the place. Once you start looking for it, it's, it really is everywhere. And our reading from Mark chapter 8 is a good example of Jesus talking about the soul. And he is drawing something of a contrast between this idea of the soul and the self. So a little context. Peter, who is one of Jesus's apprentices, um, he's just before this reading that we heard um, today that Phil read, he's made this famous declaration. You may remember from our series in the early chapters of Mark um, last term, there's this theme in Mark's gospel of Jesus's identity being hidden. And then in chapter eight, it all comes out in the open. Peter hits the nail on the head. Jesus, you're the Messiah, the anointed one. You're God's chosen deliverer, the one we've all been waiting for. And Jesus says, yes, but not the way you think. So to first century Jews living under occupation, the role of the Messiah was to liberate the nation of Israel from Rome. That's what the Messiah would come to do. Jesus reframes the whole mission and the goal of the Messiah. This is 30, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's how he talked about himself sometimes, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter says, that's not right. The Messiah isn't going to suffer and die. He's going to conquer. And he's going to kick ass. That's what they all believed. That's what the Messiah would do. And this is tough because remember, you know, Peter, just before this, he's nailed it. He's got it right. Top of the class. Um, he gets the gold star. And now what we see is Jesus immediately taking that gold star back saying, no, Peter, you haven't understood this at all. And this is because Peter's understanding of what Jesus had come to do was based on framing his mission in reference to himself, Jesus' self, his own individual interests. That's why Jesus said, you've got in mind the concerns of man, human concerns. And Jesus was saying, you don't understand God's agenda. You've got in, in mind human concerns. What's the primary human concern? The preservation of self. Jesus is going to turn that whole thing upside down by sacrificing himself to save the world from sin and death, not just the nation of Israel from the Romans. That's what the Messiah has come to do. And then he says something really challenging uh, both then and, and, and now. He basically says that this self-sacrificial way is the way of life for his followers. He calls the crowd, he calls his disciples, he says, huddle up, there's no social distancing. In those days he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Just uh, out of interest, if you want to geek out on this, that the word for soul and the word as life in that verse is actually the same word. Okay, it's all one word, soul and life. And the way we understand these verses is critical. It's going to be critical to this whole series because... 
Jesus is contrasting these two things, a thriving self and a healthy soul, saying that they are not the same thing. And you could read those verses and think that when Jesus is talking about forfeiting your soul, he's talking about heaven and hell, a kind of eternal destination. Make the right life choices, uh, whatever your definition of that may be, and when you die, your soul will go to heaven. And that is another teaching series entirely. But it's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about who we are becoming day by day, the functioning, if you like, of our operating system. You know, you only really notice the operating system on your computer when it goes wrong, apart from the odd update. When the operating system goes wrong, things start to disintegrate. Some operating systems go wrong more often than others. <laughs> there we go. My um, youngest son, who will turn four fairly shortly, um, what that means is he's now lived pretty much half his life in a pandemic world. And uh, we can see how he's changed and how he's grown all under the cloud, I guess, of this life as we've never known it, a kind of disruption over our nation not known since at least World War II. But all through this, he's been becoming someone. It's easy to see that with him. He's a lot bigger than he was. He's, he can do things that he couldn't do two years ago. But that's much harder to see in an adult, but it's just as true. Our character, our development has not been put on hold along with all these other things over the last two years. We've continued to grow and develop as people, as souls. And so, says John Ortberg, this is what it means to lose your soul, to forfeit your soul. It's not a cosmic threat, it's a clinical diagnosis. It's not I could end up there, it is I could become that. A forfeited soul, a lost soul, is not a destination, it's a condition. And Jesus talked about this, um, I guess, in the parable of the sower. If you don't know that story, you can go and Google it sometime. We're not going to read it now. But what Jesus describes in that parable, various soil conditions. Remember, it's a, an agrarian society um, that Jesus was talking into here. And he was talking about the difference that um, the condition of the soil makes to how the seed can take root and grow and bear fruit. And one interpretation of that is that Jesus was talking about the condition of our souls and how that affects our ability to take in his word, his teaching, his life, and to bear fruit. And the reason that this is so important, why this series is so important, I think, is that in order to live healthy lives as disciples of Jesus, we have to attend to our souls. If you ignore your soul, it won't go away. It will go wrong. You become something like a car without a steering wheel. It doesn't matter how fast you can go, you are just a crash waiting to happen. The Roadrunner reference is because my boys got massively into Roadrunner the last summer. Um, somewhere, somewhere out of nowhere. Joy of Netflix. Probably should say that. Netflix is good for some things, right? Okay, I'll stop. Um, <laughs> The truth is, 
many of us know this, either in, in small part or, in, or by and large. In a sense, all of us who have lived through these few years know something of this. Last quote for now, John Ortberg says this, sooner or later, your world will fall apart. He wrote, he wrote this before the pandemic. Sooner or later, your world will fall apart. What will matter then is the soul you have constructed. Say that again. Sooner or later, your world will fall apart. What will matter then is the soul you have constructed. Two brief observations and then a, a final story to end with. You know, first, I think many of us have learned an awful lot about ourselves over these past few years. We've learned about ourselves as parents. We've learned about ourselves as partners. We've learned about ourselves as people working from home or uh, working under stresses and dangers we never thought we would experience in the workplace. We've learned about ourselves in grief, in pain, in fear, in uncertainty, in extreme isolation for some of us, or as people trapped in the same place with the same people week after week after week. I think the whole thing has been a massive reality check. I know it has for me. It's shone a light on the state of our souls. And for many of us, in that we've discovered things about ourselves that we've not liked, that we're not comfortable with. That's the first observation. The second is this. The amazing, wonderful, ridiculously incredible news, in fact, the gospel of Jesus, the good news, says this. Damaged souls, broken souls, lost souls do not repel Jesus. They attract him. And he knows how to help. He is in the business of mending and healing and recovering souls. He wants to partner with us in the care of our souls if we're prepared to let him and to invite him. This is Dane Ortland talking about Jesus' heart for you. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart for you the real you is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there. And his heart for you, not on the other side of it, but in the darkness, is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. You are the keeper of the stream. How you tend your soul today will make all the difference in who you become in the next five or ten years. Here's a story to end with once again from this book. Horatio Spafford invested most of what he had in real estate. He lived in Chicago and lost everything in the great Chicago fire of 1871. It destroyed his home. They had no insurance. He lost most of his money. In 1873, he put his wife and their four daughters, their son having died of scarlet fever in 1870, on a ship heading to England. 
as he stayed behind to re-stimulate his business. A few days after the ship departed, he received a telegram from his wife. Saved, alone, what shall I do? There had been a shipwreck. All four of their daughters perished. Horatio quickly boarded another ship to England, and as it passed over the very same place in the ocean where his daughters had drowned, he wrote the words to this famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Sooner or later, your world will fall apart. What will matter then is the soul you have constructed. So can I invite you all to come on a journey this term, to be brave, to be ready to kind of dig deep into who we are and for us to learn how to become, under the guidance of Jesus, keepers of the stream. Stream is your soul. You are the keeper. So let's pray.